Welcome to Tomorrow. I'm your host, Joshua Topolsky. Today on the podcast, we discuss strippers, Britney Spears, and J. Jonah Jameson. On always one minute, let's get right into it. All right, Ryan, we're back. It's uh, it's another week. It certainly is. We actually were not did not podcast last week because I had food poisoning. Indeed. Uh, Every time I checked in, things seemed to be worse. I was like, you know what? I think this is just not going to happen. Um, very rare for me. Very rare. But it happened. And I'm I'm happy to say that I've lost 40 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. Oh, that, is my, that is my goal. My goal weight is to weigh your, 40 pounds. Your birth weight of <laughs> my five birth pounds, weight. six ounces. I actually was a big baby. I think I was like eight pounds, 10 ounces. I was like, oh, my wow. mother loves it. My mother loves to tell the story about what, how I was a large baby. I'm like, Chunky I, don't, baby. I don't know what you're trying to tell me, but I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> um, anyhow, so look, big stuff going on. Big week, big action, a lot of activity. Indeed. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happened. It's been a blur for me because I've been very ill, but, uh, um, we saved, or we're trying to save Britney Spears. We tried to kill Joss Whedon's career, and um, uh, Joss Whedon, Joss Whedon's killing his own career. Yeah, you know true. I, mean? I guess uh, Apple's making a VR headset, and that was the week. <laughs> I mean, supposedly, I think the Apple stuff. All I hear is like, you know, um, Apple's like, it's like Apple's making a car with Hyundai. And then it's like, uh, actually. No, that's not happening, and it was never happening, and this is all just made up. I feel like every um, every story I hear about Apple doing something that I firmly believe is not going to come to fruition is like that. It's like Apple's creating a, levit- a, a hoverboard, and then it's like the hoverboard plans have been scrapped. Like Mark Gurman reports one day the hoverboard is happening, and then day two is like the hoverboard has been scrapped. And all the hoverboard people have been fired. I don't know. I think Apple's doing some market testing. They're like trying to like poke the market to see if they get the right kind of reaction to some of these stories. I always felt that the Apple Watch was like that. Like the like the press dreamed the Apple Watch into existence and Apple then was like, all right, I guess we're making a watch. I mean, the Apple Watch, I mean, I don't remember the climate of of what preceded the Apple Watch. I do think the Apple Watch... It was like Fitbit and um, the Pebble, and people were like, this is going to be the next thing, is tiny. I think what I think what Apple always looks for, that you've this is what you've got to look at, is, is there already a market established, okay? And is that market, do they, are they looking at a market saying, we believe there's a scale in this market that we can get to where we can dominate, and our margins are going to be such that we make a shit ton of money on the things that we sell. They also do like a, they also do an analysis of, is there something here that is difficult or keeping this thing from being successful? And can we throw research and product development at it? So like the MP3 player is a perfect example of like, nobody knows how to fucking use this. So if we can make it easy, then that's a completely different product. I, yes. I mean, I think that 
Well, obviously, with everything that Apple does, I mean, I will say they released the Apple Watch version one of the Apple Watch sucked. It was not Horrible. a good product. It was it had a very bad user interface that was, was very hard so to understand. Bad. And like it, I, I and, and I think ultimately it was not that much of a success. I think that their second iteration of it, when they changed the interface, had a, helped them a lot. But I do think typically when Apple releases a product, when they're talking about doing something that is, um, you know, that is entering a market that exists, which is almost always what they do. I mean, they almost never, ever, ever, ever create a market for something. In fact, I don't know if they ever create a market for anything, but like smartphones existed. They, they perfect, they not perfected, but they made them significantly better and easier to use and more commercial, more commercially acceptable for people. You know, um, music players, MP3 players existed. They made a better system. They made them more commercially acceptable. They made a slicker, more beautiful, more usable product. Bluetooth watches, headsets. Watches and fitness bands. I think more fitness bands more than watches. They were like, this is a market we could be in. This could be profitable for us. We are. We already have a lot of the pieces in place. So the next two things that people talk about are this AR, VR headset, which like, let's get, let's be clear. Like AR and VR are two very different things. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it, it it's it's like if it's a dual use headset, uh, and if it's a headset at all, I mean I have real 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 trouble believing that Apple's going to make that product for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think that Apple thinks there is a market for people to wear things on their face right now. I really don't. I think people who don't wear glasses don't want to wear glasses. I'll say this till I'm dead. There is no market for people who are like I never wear glasses to be like let me wear these glasses. Like that is just it's your face. Okay. And it's pretty hard. It's one thing about putting something on your wrist. One thing about putting something around your neck, like a necklace, putting on some earrings, putting on a sweater, putting on a glove, whatever it is, putting glasses on your face, that like changes the way your face looks to people. So let's just say they're just glasses and they're AR glasses. Apple doesn't have the technology and people don't want to wear glasses. I just think that there is no technology that exists that's high end enough that will make that work for people right now. I don't think they have a quantum leap in that technology. Um, the second piece is is VR. And VR is like, I mean, what is the argument for Apple to get into VR right now? Right. And I and I really need somebody to think about this because the the VR market is, I'd say it's gotta be ninety-eight percent gaming, you know? Well, my thinking is, and this is such a roundabout way of getting there, but that like that. It, VR needs to be done locally, like the processing, the running, the app. It all needs to be a local device, just because when it's streaming or like anything, it it's it's nausea inducing. Like it needs to, it, the the latency has to be so close to zero. Yeah. Um, and so my thinking is, if Apple is trying to avoid getting into the streaming game fight, which they have done by not allowing those apps on the App Store and opening Apple Arcade, which is all lo- locally run games, I think their thinking could be like how do you push local content which is what we specialize in further maybe vr is the next like frontier of that i I don't know apple's not good at gaming so i don't know why they think that they could walk into this market um which is basically um the gaming market um and you're going to be competing with at least initially with gaming pcs so i don't really know why they think I don't know. I, I could see them doing it, or at least Tim Cook's Apple doing it, like the Apple of right now. Yeah. I could see them, because I didn't think the AirPods Max were a very good move for them. I didn't understand how it helped told their company's story better. I didn't see how it did anything that much better than the AirPods. And I didn't 
think the public perception of a $500 pair of headphones was great for them at this exact moment in history, but it sold out. And I think Tim Cook knows what products will sell, like trend will become like trendy and like visually cultural signifiers. And I think that maybe they're looking for another like thing that you can see someone like have, you know, like the iPod earbuds, they've recreated that success with the iPhone, with the AirPods, with the Apple watch of like, you're walking around with it on. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, right. I mean, walking around with it on is, you can't do that with VR. <laughs> you can't do with VR. And, and, and again, with AR, you're talking about, there are so many, one, there's a question of why, right? Yeah. What is there's it? There's a real, there's a real question of what is it solving? I don't have to look at my phone for notifications. Like if Apple should be doing anything, it's solving why we have to deal with so many notifications. Yeah. Right. And it's not like it should be in your glasses or it should be in your ear. That's not the answer. Let's yeah, I don't move. think any people are, are sitting around right now in the world complaining that they don't have enough or like their notifications the wrong, or, or that the notifications are in the wrong place, you know? Yeah. Like like uh is it solving like you can augment, like you can literally overlay reality? It's like, okay, cool, that's a really good idea. But Apple doesn't have the data set. And there's no I, – I don't see an argument for where the battery life is coming from, where you have battery life enough that that's actually like not dying on two, in two hours for you. I, I mean there's just so many weird hurdles. But also, again, you've got to wear something on your face, right? Yeah. In, in public. This is not an iPod you slip in your pocket. It's not earbuds that go in your ears, which are like a very familiar and very commercially acceptable thing that exists. So, so yeah, I mean I just like – I hear these rumors and I just – have trouble really understanding why we think they do this. I actually think the thing that sounds like the most realistic next frontier for Apple is the car. And I think there is a huge argument, right? I think there's innovation in batteries happening right now that they could capitalize on. I think they have a user interface and understanding of user uh, desires user interface know-how and understanding of user desires that they could do some really interesting things with the experience of the car. I think they have enough mapping data to very successfully do things like autopilot. Um, I mean, they, they, they probably have more mapping data than Tesla does, is my guess. If you think of every iPhone in the world being, you know, a partially a, a information gathering tool and for, car map, play. for map data and car play. And I think that, like, you know, they could do very inventive things with how you purchase the car, right? With, like, leasing programs or whatever. And I think there's an opportunity there. The question is, of course, always for them is about margins, you know? I don't know what the margins are on the Tesla, uh, on Tesla cars. I don't think they're very good. I think they're very expensive to produce, and they don't make that much money on them. But that's the genius of going to Hyundai and Kia who make, like, mass-produce fairly good cars but at which which have better margins and then apple can just put their flourishes and touches on it and then well, yeah, it's a they premium do, product they can't do the motorola rocker of cars I, I yeah i would hope that they that, that they, they, they have to they have to create something that is the, the that apple is, martin that <laughs> it has to be like the iCar. it actually the apple has to royce be, i mean the 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 obvious i mean it, it would never happen the obvious thing is that apple you know, buys a Tesla or a Rivian or, you know, whoever is actually making these cars that has already, you know, where they can ramp up the production and ramp up the scale. But it is, but cars are a mess, you know, it's a very messy space. And so while I think it actually makes sense for them from a, from a company perspective, from a, from a, 
a user base perspective, like would you drive an Apple car? Like I think there are a lot of people who would. I think there are a lot of people who would say, yeah, I'm interested in that. I, I you do have to look at it like does it make sense from a from a margin standpoint and from a, a complexity standpoint? You know, Apple has not taken since since the death of Steve Jobs, its bets have been very moderate. They've been yeah. very metered bets. Yeah. They are like some different iPads, some different size phones. Uh well, they're some, a different company. Some, they don't need to take huge swings. Well, no, I know. I mean, I'm just saying they're not taking huge swings. And they're they're not introducing I mean, the Apple Watch is is probably closest to, you know, the most innovative thing they've done. But but I my understanding is I'm pretty sure the Apple they're, Watch was on in development. I think it was in development when Steve Jobs was alive. I think there was some but version I mean, of like, it that existed. There's, there's the innovations that we like, which is like a cool gadget that does a thing. Ah, it's so good and cool. And it does this thing. Um, that's innovation. But I think Tim Cook sees innovation in like, well, I made the AirPods and now that's the bulk of the money we make is on things well, like AirPods. Well, his and innovation is a kind of innovation. His inno innovation is supply chain innovation yeah. and, and margin reduction innovation. Um, so, you know, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I just yeah I feel like all the stuff about Apple with these huge groundbreaking mind blowing products is very thin. I think the rumors are very thin. I don't buy for a second that any of them are really on tap. I think the car could make sense. I think the Apple the dirgeable. Yeah, I think the <laughs> I, I think the AR VR thing is is much less of a realistic uh, uh, endeavor for them. But all right, what else is going on? But well, there's a lot of news this week. A lot of there was a lot of news last week. Should we talk about Britney Spears at all? Uh yeah, let's talk about Britney. Brit um, there's a huge there's a New York Times documentary about Britney Spears. It's interesting. There's a New York Times documentary that just came out about Britney Spears. Uh, called what is it called? Finding Britney? framing Britney. Framing Britney. Yes. See, I'm on top of all of this. Um, you know, which explores the uh, uh history of her as a celebrity and the way the media and the public uh, viewed her and treated her and explores her um this weird relationship she has this weird situation with her father where he has this uh, con conservator what is it called conservatorship a conservatorship where he basically is in control of her whole life um and and it seems very wrong and very weird and very bad like she doesn't have agency uh and so it's an exploration really but in a lot of ways it's it's brought up all of this stuff like yesterday there was a buzzfeed story and it's like fans want Justin Timberlake to apologize and it sort of forced everybody to look backwards and go, hey, wait a second. Maybe like when we were all making jokes about Britney Spears, who was like, I mean, I don't know when she had her nervous breakdown, but it was like, I mean, how old was she? She was like 23 or something. 25. Yeah. 25. We were like, ha ha, look at Britney Spears shaving her head. And we all thought it was hilarious that maybe it's possible that we were uh, treating a human being like an inanimate object and we should reevaluate our behavior. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of that happening this week. There's a lot of conversation about it. There is a lot of reflection. And as a result, a lot of people looking at our current crop of stars and current crop of celebrities and saying, you know, what the fuck are we doing here? Um, you know, I say this even as, you know, influencers have made the a career of being objectified and, well, and creating we've, a we've fantasy. We've split up the jobs, right? Like a pop star used to have to be an influencer, product development team, musician, 
uh, actor, dancer, singer, songwriter. Um, they had to do TV appearances. Like there's all these different things that pop stars, like they had to do, pick their clothes, their fashion. They were the, you know, the, in the mid nineties, they were the, the supermodel became the pop star. And like, then we broke them all down. Now you have like Kylie Jenner who just does social media and like develops makeup lines and product endorsement deals. But then you have someone who's like a professional TikTok dancer and makes dance videos and becomes very famous, like Maddie Ziegler, just on the dancing. Then you have, you know, like we've broken up those jobs a little bit and it's less like everybody dresses exactly like Dua Lipa. Although Ariana Grande like approximates sort of that level of stardom. It's, it's just really, it's a different media landscape and there's a different level of pressure on these young people, which in some ways is better. And in some ways it's worse because we've also made a lot more people famous. <laughs> um, there's a lot of famous people now, you know, and they're yeah. famous with specific communities. Uh, but once you pass a certain level of following, I mean, a lot of people say Twitter is no longer fun after you have a hundred thousand followers or whatever, or 10,000 or whatever it is. Once you pass a certain level of, fame like you open yourself up to all the problems that she was deluged with and i mean this whole thing is just so surreal for me to, to be even be talking about because regular people like my mom or like my you know friends from high school now speak with this like gay pop culture slang that was very heavily like on internet forums and was really only known like stan the fact that stan is a word that politicians use is mm -hmm. so surreal to me wait do they do they use it who's yeah using aoc it? uses it all AOC. the time yeah aoc doesn't count but but aoc is very cool aoc is very cool Yes, but you know, Obama was very cool once before very he was cool. the establishment. He's very cool. But He's it's still very cool. It's just it's interesting to see that or even this Britney conversation, which I feel like I spent years on forums or in like chat rooms or whatever, like in college, talking about like what the fuck are they doing to her and like this is so fucked up and like people look at Britney Spears like she isn't an artist or look at her like she isn't a person or look at her like she asked for any of this, which she never asked for any of this. Um and I feel like that opinion I felt like when I was amongst gay people, mostly, or certain like-minded women, we would talk openly with these terms and about these topics. And now there are these mainstream pieces of discourse. And it's just a little surreal now to be like, oh, everyone's thinking about the way that we treat young women. And I felt like only I was not, – not to say like – that I'm some special person. There's other societal Ryan cultural had issues. It, Ryan had it right all along. There's other cultural issues that I've had huge, huge blind spots for. That's but right. this one is mine. You know what I mean? And it's like just your anti-Semitism. To it. it took you years to not be anti-Semitic. You know, <laughs> and I think that's you know. I also you like. On. I'm going to be honest with you. I hate uh, white people. So oh my God. that's been a real. <laughs> oh, come on, you're going to get canceled. You're going to get um, one of these fucking. Uh, these uh uh what is it their group called it's like outlook america first look america yeah, whatever it is fast look america oath whatever keepers. these oath keepers in one of these fucking three percenters or whatever they're gonna start tweeting about how you said you hate white people on the podcast and i'm gonna have to fire you unfortunately it's very sad <laughs> very sad but uh you know it's but you know, it's, it's just surreal it like, culture is real it's like this is like i don't know it's weird to watch this be a, a reckoning publicly but it's also so satisfying because like yeah we we really did, not only did we hurt Britney Spears or Miley Cyrus or whoever is in that role currently now, not only did we hurt them, but we hurt everybody watching them. Well, it's like I do think that there is a uh, I mean, if, if you could trace like we did upskirt photos of Britney Spears just getting out of her car when she was mentally ill. And who, we like made Perez, that like Perez Hilton. Right? And we made that her fault as a country. And we made fun of her and young I mean, women there, looking there... at that. I mean. What does the, that say the, when someone feels you up in a club and makes a I joke mean, out of it? 
the the well, I think that first off, there is a there is a segment of the media in America and in very very prevalent prevalent in America and in the UK. Yeah, this very tab the the tabloid media that has made the hounding of largely women, but 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 some men, but largely women, the hounding of the stalking of the like uh uh grossly um invasive sort of like uh um maneuvering around of women they've made that their business and for two you years know, I, Britney I, Spears was over 70% of all paparazzi revenue came from just photos of her at a gas station yeah and 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 like you know it's this is to this day i mean this is going on of course the pandemic has made it harder to like you know, creep shot somebody when they're actually not out in public. But you look at the cover of Us Weekly this week and it's Demi Moore on the cover and it's like, what is Demi Moore doing to her face? And it's like, it's pretty fucked up. I mean, I understand it. I get the impulse to gossip, right? But gossip between you and me in private is different than putting a person's face on the cover of a magazine and suggesting that there's something wrong with it whatever well, you could say that there is or there isn't but making but make fun it, of someone's appearance to, no matter how what the story is is not the same as reporting on the army hammer well, they, or they harvey weinstein case. well they do it in the they couch it in this kind of concern trolling where they're like we're worried yeah people are worried about to me more she's lost perspective or whatever but it's like the point is it is largely uh, this genre of quote unquote journalism it's not really journalism it's just gossip mongering and, and tabloid uh, just classic tabloid stuff where you're like, let me let's focus our attention and objectify this person, treat them like an treat them truly like an inanimate object, like a person who is not worth the empathy that a normal human receives. Because well, we'll explain it by the fact that well, they've made themselves a celebrity, or well, they wear scantily, you know, they're scantily clad on stage, therefore it's open season on talking about their body, or well, their beauty is one of the reasons they're famous. And so, and like actually, like if you get right down to it. It showcases this enormous lack of empathy for another human being. And I think if you – and not to be too like, you know, gl- you know uh, unified theory of everything here. But if you look at the last 10 years and specifically in America, there's a great Adam Serwer uh, story from The Atlantic called The Cruelty is the Point About um, Trump and His Followers. And, and I do think there's this like – We've done something in society that has like allowed a a lack of empathy and a lack of care for others to become a prevailing and socially accepted way to to proceed through the world. And the truth is, if we all had a little bit more empathy and if we all stopped for a second and thought about a person, an individual versus like these, you know, whatever ideas you have of like celebrities, a big big bucket of things that that could be in there right but britney spears is a person right like you know you could you could be uncomfortable with you don't want uh you don't like you don't want you don't want to like you share a bathroom with a trans person or whatever but like each trans person is a human being like there are human beings there and like what we what we what we fail to do so often is or not all of us but many of us and frankly we're all guilty of this at one point or another but like there is that lack of empathy that I think has driven a lot of the discourse and a lot of the politics and a lot of the a lot of what is happening in the world. And I think I don't know where I don't know where it stems from. I don't know where it comes from. But I do think if I can play armchair anthropologist for a second, I do think the internet the the internet has done two things at the same time that have made this easier. I'm not saying it certainly precedes the internet. But it's widespread in a way that it's never been before, and I think it's because the internet does two things. One, it 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 
makes us more, it makes other people more visible to us, right? Which is, I think it can be a very good thing. It makes the rest of the world, people that you don't live right near, people that you would never think about more visible, but it also makes them visible at a remove. It has a, it gives you this, um, it's, it's voyeuristic almost, right? You're looking at them as this distant object, not as a person, right? As this thing, not as an actual human being. And so I think that, I think that like, there is this like, we're, rec we're reckoning now. I mean, the Britney thing comes at a really interesting time because it seems like and feels like, and frankly, what so much of Biden's campaign was about, not to bring this back to politics, but it seemed like it was a campaign about empathy, you know, about caring about people versus hating people, you know, like, like I, I do have a lot of hate in my heart for people who follow Donald Trump. And like, you know, it's hard to work out of that to think about maybe I should have empathy for them because I think, you know, in order for me to have empathy for someone, I have to believe that in a similar situation, they would they would do the same for me. It's hard to like to completely empathize with somebody who kind of wants you dead, you know. But but it is like I do think there is this problem that we have that I'm not saying we got to understand the right. I actually think the right they all need mental health services in their lives in a big way. But I do think the lack of empathy has made all of this more prevalent but also i think now we're starting to going to start to reckon with what it looks like what a world looks like when we go wait maybe we have a problem and i think the britney thing is part of that um it maybe isn't all of it because there's a lot of other underlying problems that have that made that possible but i think when you begin to be able to empathize with people who you don't know uh when you start to think about how it may be for them as a human being and not as an object then it becomes a lot harder to to hurt them you know yeah, I think it is really notable that America put down their Britney Spears toy, picked up their Donald Trump toy, put down their Donald Trump toy, and picked up their Britney Spears toy, because I do think it, they're part of the same level of like nas national fascination, um, and they're it's sort of like a like the national id, like there, there's this shadow America that like wants to just destroy things or just tear things apart or just take what America is. And what's emblematic of America, like, you know, Britney's piece of me song, she says, I miss American dreams since I was 17. We took the girl who was the ultimate avatar for American life and dominance and cultural capital and values and like youth culture and then destroyed her. And then we took Donald Trump, who was the ultimate like in the eyes of many people, I don't think that he is, but in the eyes of many people, the ultimate avatar of like corporate life, success, you know, money. He's like a cartoon character to these people. And then we became fixated on that. And I, 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 it makes me think that America has this thing where we just love a water cooler topic. We love to pick at something and, and we love an area of culture where like, what's going to happen and turn everything into an action movie and into a story and into uh, a drama everything's a soap opera and you know, it's not healthy that we view everything as entertainment now like we were we were so good at making movies and video games and music and and tv shows that comic books superheroes that we turned everything into it and politics should not be entertainment and people's personal lives should not be entertainment even if they're entertainers and uh, you know it, it's it's i hope that this is actually like you're saying a reckoning with the lack of empathy that we have and a reckoning with the kind of destruction that we 
that we do for novelty's sake um because like there are other people on the other side of screens and if it takes Britney Spears to be the person for you to realize that she existed on the other side of the screens you looked at her from, maybe that you can expend that to other people on the other side of screens. Yeah. Maybe you don't have to go online and rage about how the Jews are doing X, Y, and Z. And Because if you met a Jewish person in real life, you probably wouldn't do that. And why wouldn't you do that? Because you know that's a real person. And if you're going online, they can be these avatars and these cartoon characters and these like these ideas rather than people. And I think we all need to start realizing that like everyone is a person, everyone is a human being and whether or not they deserve condemnation is separate from that. Like I think Republicans and Nazis do deserve condemnation and I do want to shame them, but we have to decide who, how we decide who we hold accountable or scrutinize or, I mean, it's like, and it's crazy because all of this has happened in a period. I mean, up until COVID of decadence of like, we have climbed Maslow's pyramid of needs, some of us, at least in the media, um, have climbed that. And yet the same people who like now have iPhones and have access to as much information as they could ever need. And the greatest minds in the world are just putting their classes and podcasts out on the internet all the time. YouTube videos are uh, can be whole university courses made the most like consumable version ever. And at the same time, we haven't, we all of that's happening at the same time we haven't erased the need to like watch the world burn a little bit yeah and it, yeah it, it speaks to, i guess the human condition and it's also like uh, you know p watching britney pick up the pieces or thinking about how she can pick up the pieces is probably very similar to how a lot of americans feel about their own lives how do we pick up the pieces and how do we move forward and and how, what kind of big changes do we need to make to infrastructure so that this doesn't happen again? You know, America shaved its head in 2016. And and that metaphor that she <laughs> wow. has always been. Wow. America shaved its head in 2016 is iconic, Ryan. I don't know if you I don't know if you coined that. I, I, just, I just did. It's very good. It's iconic. And I love it. Thank you. That's why they pay me the big bucks. That is. That truly is. Um, but I don't know. I just I think I think maybe the signal to me culturally, I didn't know this at the time, but was destruction. It was overanalyzing. It was ripping people apart, viciousness. And I maybe watching this symbol, Brittany, be cared for lovingly and apologetically and empathetically. I hope it's not an abuse scenario where we turn again. But I, I do hope that this is a signal that the whole culture is if we can do this with our with our cartoon character celebrities, maybe we can start doing it like like you said, with each other, with other aspects of society with other groups of people like i don't know i i hope the britney thing isn't i hope it isn't um uh, just part of an abuse cycle like i said I, because we, she's been in one with the public for so long and um it's really ugly and it's sad yeah. i you know i think about little girls like like i i, I frankly i hope zelda never knows anything about britney spears oh my god i hope R she only right? knows her great songs yeah she'll only know her like the toxic video she doesn't need yeah. to know well i don't know about the toxic video <laughs> but there are some other videos perhaps you know when she's older let's not worry about it right now she doesn't need to be now but you know i hope that one day she knows about like the songwriting that britney is responsible for or whatever but doesn't need to grow up with it hanging over her head that like young women if they're not virgins will be torn apart in the town square like that was what my generation believed that's yeah. crazy well you know thank god we've hopefully well i don't know how we moved on very hard to tell i don't know at the same very time we hard. have only fans we're like you know people are are 
there's the whole Jojo Siwa thing going on. It, it's, you know, people are trying to make it into something salacious because she, we saw her as a little girl once, but she's just a teenager who came out as gay. It's not like a big scandal. It, I love it Jojo Siwa. I love Jojo Siwa even more now that she's out. <laughs> uh, Lesbian great icon. Role, great role model for children. Just the best. The best of what we have to offer, in my opinion. <laughs> and shame on anybody who dares to, to, to send any hate her way. President Jojo Siwa. President. Hey, listen. You know what? It could happen, and I'm, go I'm good with that. Although, she's probably like a Republican or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I would trust any lesbian, Republican or not, to do a better job know. than most people. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, gay Republicans. Very confusing position to hold, in my opinion. But, you know, everybody's <laughs> different. I just find it to be. I, I get it. It's not. You're not. No. You know. No one group is monolithic, but there's a lot. Of, there's a lot more Peter Thiel's in that group of people. It's just like I, I actively dislike <laughs> myself and people like me is a very weird position to take up. Silver meddling. You know, it happens. It happens. Um. All right. Well, look. There's a lot more to talk about, but I want to. We we got to take a break because we have a great conversation coming up. Uh, that I think everyone's going to enjoy. And so let's like get into that, and then we can return because I've. So many more things to tell you. Our guest today is Natalia Petrozella, a historian and host of the fascinating new podcast, Welcome to Your Fantasy, about the uh, unseen, unknown backstory of the Chippendale dancers. Natalia, thank you for being here. I'm excited to be here. I mean, I'm probably, I'm probably underselling it by saying it's just, it sounds like, oh, it's just a, a backstory of these guys who danced, you know, semi-nude. You actually have done a story about what I consider to be kind of an American phenomenon, something that in the 80s and 90s was like this, you know, it was McDonald's-like in its sort of branding in America, obviously not as big as McDonald's in any way, not as uh, acceptable as McDonald's, but like- I was things... gonna say, family-friendly locations no, all no, over. But, <laughs> but when it, it's like, it was like one of those like American exports where it's kind of like, you know, it felt like a brand that could only come from, could only exist in, and was like very popular in America, even though like the actual concept of it was fairly like, you know, like, you know, it's like nude men dancing for, you know, drunk ostensibly or, or what we believe is like just groups of drunk women who, you know, are, are, are loving it. But like it, its brand felt very Disneyland. Like, you know, you, the first episode is a Disneyland for adults, and it did almost feel like the way Vegas feels. You know, Vegas is a dirty place where lots of nasty stuff goes on. But when you think of Vegas in the American sort of, uh, you know, in that realm of American brands, it's like this fun, cool thing. So so I'm very familiar with Chippendales as this like almost vanilla uh, thing. But can you talk a little bit about what Chippendales was like, just give if somebody has never heard of it, if somebody doesn't know what they're getting into listening to this, can you t like talk about a little bit just what Chippendales is and was when you came to it for this story? God, yeah, absolutely. So I do not use the word iconic lightly, and I think it's kind of an annoying word, honestly, but it really is an iconic brand. Chippendales is a brand, as you guys described, that um, you know was extremely popular and well-known in the 1980s and still is well-known. I mean, now it is still a show in Vegas, and they have these like celebrity headliners who dance, and you know, there's a traveling show too, but it's still something that has name recognition, even though it was founded in 1979. So I think definitely the brand story is super interesting, but what it is, if you've never heard of it, um, for your <laughs> listeners, it's male exotic dancers, now for men and women, but at the time was very 
specifically for women, not for men. And the idea was this is not porny, this is not sex work, this is not full frontal nudity. This is this thing that's like risque and sexy, but sanitized at the same time. And um, yeah, the, the first episode's called The Disneyland for Adults, and the founder of Chippendales absolutely had um, that kind of goal. I mean, his two idols were Hugh Hefner and Walt Disney. That's like quite a combo, but one that I think does a lot of work to explain how it is both risque, but also very um you know very mainstream right and it was and it was i mean in essence it was a strip show right i mean like the the concept was pulled from you know this you know idea of seeing scantily clad people dancing on stage obviously there was a lot of theatrics in chip and nails but it's funny that you say um you know it wasn't sex work it wasn't porn and yet you know it's sexy but it was i mean we are talking about something that is that puts sex front and center right i mean was that was that how did i'm curious and and, I, and then we'll talk a little bit about the background of it but i'm curious like th- is the impression that you have that 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 chippendales did this like magic trick cuz this is what i when i was listening to the show i thought what an interesting thing that it was able to be you know overtly about sex and sexuality and yet make it put it into this cartoonish context like that i mean how does that happen how did that i mean did that strike you at all in that way when you started working on that yeah that's a really astute observation so you know the big focus on like wow was chippendale such a big deal is like oh my god women could go to a strip club too and women could show that they had sexual desires and that's definitely the way that they sold it and there's something significant to that but i think it's really important to your question about putting sex front and center to go back um, like a level in the story and to look at how hard it was to recruit guys at the beginning to get on stage and take off their clothes for women. Like they, the guy, like the, uh, the founders were like, could not find um, men, particularly men that had the look that they kind of wanted clean cut, who were willing to do that. They thought it was sleazy. They thought it was gross. They thought this must be like a gay thing because the only place you would find a gay male dance review, uh, sorry, a male dance review would be like a gay club. And so early on, um, there's that kind of hesitation, um, not just like from the women, should we go do this risque thing? They were actually much more comfortable with lining up from like the day this started practically, but more right. from guys who were like, this is going to ruin my respectability. And so many of the guys from the early days talked about that. Like, but I want to be an actor. I want to go into business. Like, you know, how will this sh- affect me? And I think some of them are still like a little conflicted about it right well it's funny i mean suddenly men have to consider things that women have been dealing with for ages right (laughs) they're like oh i don't know this could be bad for my reputation um uh so let's go back a little bit let's actually talk about uh because you know the story uh is is so much about the the history obviously about the history of this and, and certainly the arc of of where this brand and these people go. But can you talk a little bit about the founders, a guy named Steve Banerjee, who, who would you describe, when this person is described in the, in the show, just, you know, at once both sounds exactly the opposite of the person I would have expected and then perfectly exactly who you would think would start something he like sounds, this. He sounds kind of like a, like a Pedro Pascal and Wonder Woman kind of character, like a fantastically <laughs> over-the-top sort <Yeah>. of... <laughs> 
like larger than life, but much smaller than life. So talk a little yeah. bit about this guy and, and 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 how this and how and how Chippendales actually comes to be at the, at the beginning. Yeah. So Steve Banerjee, who's the founder of Chippendales, is an immigrant from India. He comes to L.A. by way of Canada. He's got big Hollywood dreams, but he starts out as a gas station franchisee. And like to me, that's such an interesting beginning and sort of not intuitive part of this story. Completely different kind of pumping there just <laughs> he was but he was always in he was always involved in pumping in some way all right anyhow sorry great segue yeah absolutely <laughs> that was the first um, moment when I learned that actually as a historian that I was like oh this isn't just like some curiosity but that was actually sort of representative of the changes in immigration going on in the U.S. at that time that you had all these immigrants from um, South Asia coming in after 1965 so I'm like that's interesting and then he comes and he basically you know has these big Hollywood dreams. Like I said, Walt Disney, Hugh Hefner sells the gas stations and buys this club, Destiny 2. He, he names it that. And it's totally a dive bar. It's in the Palm section of LA. And he's just very enterprising about wanting to get people in the door and wanting to do something that'll distinguish him in the world of LA nightlife. And so the really early days, he is really kind of just throwing ideas out there. There's women's mud wrestling one night. There's backgammon, which is like this super hot high-end thing to do. Like Hugh Hefner had his own backgammon club in, in uh, LA. There's ballroom dancing. And on one night of the week, they end up introducing a male strip contest. But not like what Chippendales is today. Like it is like walk out, take off your clothes, women clap. The guy who gets the most clapping gets like a hundred bucks at the end of it the was night. It was like, like, like an open mic, like an amateur night. Uh, okay. So yeah, they, they did have some guys who were trained dancers, but let's not, let's just say that was not the main attraction. Right. And it wasn't like put together. It wasn't like a review. It was basically like, if you come in and you want to take off your clothes, we'll let you do it. Yeah, it's uh, not like they were scouting together a team of like right, elite. Right. <laughs> I, I, one thing I wonder, and I know this is such a minor thing, but I got hung up on when I was listening is you said that destiny two was the name of the club and there was no destiny one. And I'm just dying to understand. <laughs> and I've been, I, I was fascinated with that. I know it sounds like, I know that's not, not by far the most interesting part of this story, but do you know why it was called Destiny 2 or why there was no Destiny 1? Like, I, so my, in my mind, I thought, well, it must be, they thought this is not going to be the first place you go in the night. But like, once you're really drunk, you'll probably go to Destiny. It's like your second destination. So maybe there's some relationship there. Do you know, like... Do you know why there was no Destiny 1? Such a great question and one that we have spent an incredible amount of time researching. We never <laughs> got a conclusive answer, but I will say that one of um, the listeners who was internal to Spotify heard that and had spent time in India and was like, that's such an Indian thing. You would name it Destiny 2, even if there's not a Destiny 1, to make it seem like you have two locations and that's oh. like bigger than it is. Now, that is not like confirmed, but I thought that was an interesting insight that like not even the expert in South Asians in California told us, but that is that's, one theory. Well, that's so interesting also because so much of this is about creating a mystery and creating a story for, I mean, this, this, you know, the founder, he's so much of, so much of what he's doing. I mean, you have that early recording of him where he's basically being like fake interviewed to kind of, uh, you know, come out of the, his shell a little bit or whatever. And it's like, oh, here's a person who's really trying to create an aura of like the Hugh Hefner aura, like you talk about. So it's interesting to imagine. I, I, I'm so, that's so 
that's so unexpected. Like I thought it would be the answer to that is like, well, nobody really knows. But even and maybe we don't know that's the case. But even that little tidbit speaks so much to the bigger story that you're talking about here, which is this part of this you know story is this pursuit of fame and fortune and and to become that iconic certainly the brand but i think that that uh steve banerjee clearly had this idea in his mind that he would be this like hugh hefner like character so well one thing just because you asked also before more of what he's like like you know he did not immediately fit that part he had a really thick accent he had a stutter as he made money he was like a really fancy guy like nice suits mercedes um he would drive like a benz around but he would did not naturally he was not naturally a guy who like found the limelight particularly when he's surrounded with all these hot guys right so he's yeah. a little bit of a sort of in the shadows figure even as he definitely wanted to be like a baller and a high roller <laughs> right yeah the difference between Hugh Hefner and him and will would always be no matter how successful Chippendales ever got is the gender dynamics right like Hugh Hefner can be given all the credit for like the hot girls coming around and he's the focus of attention because women are looked at as objects. Whereas all those men up there dancing will always pull focus from the man who like put it together. Um, and I, I found the gender dynamics of, I found the gender dynamics of that uh, whole thing extremely interesting of just like, you know, is this feminist? Is this exploit finding a new way to exploit like, you know, the male gaze in some way, like it's, it's, it's very, um, it makes for a very different path for him than Hugh Hefner or like Larry Flint had, you know? Totally. And I think you're absolutely right to point that out, especially if you think, and here comes that eighties context again, like Chippendales rises to fame as HIV AIDS is like destroying gay communities yeah. and also really fanning the flames of homophobia. And so Steve Banerjee, who you can imagine kind of early on, I would say had sort of garden variety homophobia. Like, I don't want this to be seen as like a gay place that, um, through, and I say that, like, if you could see me, I'm, I'm there, there's nothing okay with garden variety homophobia. Right. But no, you of know course, what but... overcomes homophobia more than anything money. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fine. I just, I, sorry, I chuckled when you said that because not to, not to interrupt, but, but, um, the, the idea, I, I, I think Chippendales to me was always seen as like, there was always an air of gayness to it, no matter, you know, whether it was, they were pushing it as this thing for women or not. I always thought like, I, I don't know. And maybe this is some, some internalized homophobia of my own or just the impression that I got from seeing how like, you know, like to your point, you know, nude men or mostly nude men dancing at a club was not the domain of, it wasn't a straight domain in, in certainly in the eighties. you know? Yeah. So, so, okay. So just like finish that thought. So basically these guys throughout the eighties actually have to lean in even harder to be like, this isn't a gay thing because there was so much fear and homophobia around anything that was a quote unquote gay thing. But you're absolutely right that from the get go, there's this central paradox in the Chippendales men of like, they're both supposed to be these like super macho, like hetero love machines. And they are doing like what's quintessentially defined as feminine work. They dance for money. They spend all day tanning and working out and caring about their bodies. They wear hairspray. They're in the, you know, they're in the tanning beds. Like these are men who are like, that's usually the work of like self-presentation that we associate with women. And like right. every guy that I talked to had something to say about this. And a lot of them, I was like, I'd always ask what's the biggest misconception 
misconception about being a Chippendales dancer and they were like, we're not gay, that, you know, that we're gay. And like no <laughs> right. man was ever gay. And like everyone had sort of strong feelings about that. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, to, what, to your point about the kind of the, the prep work and the, and the actual work itself, I mean, it is pure objectification, right? Which it also is a, seems like gay men would be very good at it had they given them a chance. <laughs> right. you have to, well, you, well, backup dancers were gay, um, and, and everybody made that distinction. <laughs> I was going to say, like, there's no way that some of those guys weren't gay. Uh, but, but that is – but the work is the work of objectification, right? Their, their entire role is to be objectified, which – classically is uh you know sadly the domain of women in, in throughout history right and so it does kind of flip i mean no one's going to say that like chippendales was progressive but there there is an undercurrent there of uh of of maybe by accident uh shifting the narrative a little bit about who can be objectified and in what context i think that's you know, I, I, I'm sure that Steve Banerjee was not like, let me shift the gender dynamic here by doing Chippendales. But I do think at, by, by accident uh, or osmosis, it sort of did happen in, the, in, the, in this case. And women loved it, right? I mean, the, the, my impression was the public that, that women would line up. And, and when, by the time Chippendales was touring and coming to places like I grew up in Pittsburgh and Chippendales would like – I think they had ads on TV for Chippendales. Well, I actually have a question about this. So – uh, nowadays, there's this whole phenomenon, or there was before COVID, um, of women going to gay bars, and that causes a lot of controversy because, like, the entertainment isn't necessarily for this community. And, like, you know, a lot of times, for a long time, it was like bridal parties would go to a gay bar with a drag show or a strip show or something um, and would be very obnoxious, which was, you know, politically complicated when we, you know, gay people couldn't get married. Um, but it, it, do you think it functions the same for purpose that that does, which is the drag queen or the host or even just gay men being there? It's like these Chippendales guys being the analog to that are professional and uh, and it's a controlled scenario that there's more women in the room than men. And then you have this license to act out to be like to get drunk, to yell things at men that you've never gotten to do and, and flip the script. Like, I, I think, you know, I think w women aren't provided a lot of spaces with that, right? So when you, you are provided it, it, it could be such a, it, it would be such a, a freeing thing. Is it, do you think it was more about the actually wanting to see dancing men or is it more like this is a once in a lifetime chance to act like, like you're at a SAG party? Um, yeah, no, such such good points and so much of what you said there. So yeah, I definitely like what Chippendales is trying to sell, right? It's like you can just turn the tables and we do a lot of work in the podcast to both show how they presented that table turning as something empowering and also to show its limits. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like go turning the tables for one night is not going to like change gender dynamics so much. And also like how much were those tables really turned? I mean, a lot of the guys' stories are about like the best part of this experience was looking out into the audience and being like, I'm going to sleep with her. I'm going to sleep with her. I'm going to sleep with her. Like that to me seems to <laughs> suggest that these women were not exactly like driving the ship there. Um, so there's that. But then something else you said, I think really speaks to what might be like actually the feminist promise, if there is one, of Chippendales, which was these women coming together and going out and having a good time in a primarily female space where they don't have to worry about 
about being hit on where, you know, if they don't call a guy over with a dollar bill, he's not going to come and grind on her. That's something that she's sort of controlling. And, you know, a bunch of women that we interviewed talked about like the most fun was like getting ready together and having this like kind of girls experience and the men believing it's very sex in the city. Yeah, totally. Like long before sex in the city. And, you know, the men are like the pretense for going there and everyone likes to talk about how hot they are. But it's really like these women making meaning of this experience together. It reminds me a little, you know, this is the same era as like jazzercise and all these like women's exercise spaces. And like, it reminds me a little bit of that, that like women who had always felt like, oh, gyms are like for these big beefy guys and we get eyeballed or like told we shouldn't be there. And now we get to have this like exercise space to be in our bodies and wear tight clothes and be together. Like to me, it's that same sort of um, vibe a little bit that you have with mm-hmm. the appeal of Chippendales. I love that. I love that somehow we back into like, you know, f- women's lib and feminism through Chippendales, even though, to your point, not really the point and not really like there's a say the part that you're talking about is almost a byproduct of the show itself, right? So, so, so I want to shift a little bit just because uh, I know we only have you for a limited amount of time. And I want to talk about. I mean, we've sort of set the backdrop here for the Chippendales world in talking about it. And I think it's the more I hear you talk about it, the more I'm like, I can't wait to see where this goes. But I'm very interested to know what was it for you? Obviously, I think, you know, this is a cultural phenomenon that's interesting no matter – like if you even care about American culture, this one stands out. But what was the moment for you and what was the what, – what was the – um, storyline for you that made you want to spend this a kind of time and energy on telling this story? Like what turned it for you and made this so interesting that you had to go this deep on it? Yeah. So for me, it was probably two, maybe three things. And one was everything we've just talked about. Like, I'm just so fascinated about the way that I'm constantly being served ads for products that promise like women's empowerment by buying something. And Mm -hmm. like the first thing that kind of grabbed me about Chippendales was that they were doing that in like the late seventies and early eighties and like how much has changed, how much has not changed. So I got interested in it from that kind of thematic perspective. But then when I started looking into the actual story of the brand and I saw that there was this murder in the middle and a whole bunch of other crime we get into in the podcast, I'm like, oh my God, like there's actually a story that would probably lend itself really well to a different kind of storytelling than one does in, you know, the academic circles I hang out in a lot. And I had, um, I've, I've had this podcast for over five years with two other historians who actually worked on this show too. It's called Past Present, very different. It's conversational. But we were kind of excited about a new direction in um, our podcasting lives together. And so, you know, there are a few steps in between that and making the show, but it seemed to us that this had like the meat of a really interesting thematic story that like fired us up from a variety of perspectives that were like cultural and social and political, but then also this crime piece with the popularity of true crime podcasts and our podcasting experience. We were like, oh, this is like a perfect thing to pitch to, um, you know, do in a really serious and like considered way. And so we were psyched that Pineapple Street and then Gimlet and Spotify wanted to be involved and were game for that. I was going to ask about the whole murder angle of it. (laughs) As somebody who I love true crime, I'm obsessed. I've read like probably every Manson and Scientology book that exists. But I, I, 
similar to the Manson thing, there's so much cultural baggage that gets brought to the discussion of this murder before you even get into it. Um, how did you sort out what had been skewed through other people's lens and skewed through the lens of um, what the job is, what the environment is, um, what the brand is to the reality of the situation. Cause there's so many movies and TV shows in production that are either inspired directly by this or based on this. And of course that's gonna, that's that, you know, that, that muddies the waters between truth and reality, like reality and fiction. I mean, how did you uh, like, how did you find the truth of it and find the, like the hard facts of the case and like, the, the truth of the story that was in there? Yeah, um, it's, um, it's a really good question. So I think, you know, when you have like a dramatic story about like a murder or a killing, like there is a way that that stuff is often told, particularly in kind of like mainstream big budget media, which is like as this like conflict between individuals, right? And I think that's really interesting and can make for super compelling storytelling. But as someone who has spent like her whole career studying like cultural and context and structures, to me, I was less interested in that purely character-driven um, kind of narrative and more interested in like, you know, how did these guys come to care so much about what they did? How did this brand come to have so much value in that moment? And then from the perspective of characters, because don't get me wrong, there's some great characters and welcome to your fantasy you're going to get to know. Um, from the character perspective, I also wanted to go beyond some of these other media treatments and be like, this is not just a battle between the two men who ran this company. This is about the women who showed up at Chippendales and who had their bachelorette there and bought the calendar and hung it in their cubicle. This is about the guy who didn't make the troupe because, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't look the part. Um, this is about like all of those figures around this. This is about like the policymaker or the lawyer who, who prosecutes them in one of their many legal cases. And so it was like both setting up context and multiple individual perspectives from the way that I think this story is often told that motivated me to be like, we can do something different and I can bring the skills I have as a historian to really tell this in a really different way. So it's interesting hearing you guys talk about the, the crime aspect of this, which I guess I was less aware of, I mean, Ryan, maybe this is, you just, you know, knee deep in true crime, but, but I mean, how much of, how, how much of that is, I mean, I wonder just in the case of, of, of this story, obviously there's this, there, there seems to be historically this, this um, connection between sex work uh, and pornography and, and a, a criminal element. And, and clearly, you know, as a society, we've driven, sex work to the fringes in a way that has made that uh, almost inevitable. How much of it is a story is it is the story about that 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 because this sat at the fringes in some way had connected to the fringes because of you know American culture's weirdness about sex and sex work um and how much of it is a story about these these individual people and their and 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 the paths they take I guess you know, is is this was it inevitable that there would be crime wrapped up in the story, or as you as you research it, as you told the story, was it these particular 
you know, these 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 guys who were behind this, who started it, who pushed it, was it just inevitable that they were going to be connected to the to the criminal aspect of it? Yeah, it's a really good question. Like, uh, is sex work and criminality inextricable? Um, well, you know, in our society that, as you say, stigmatizes and criminalizes this kind of work, um, maybe maybe it is. Um, I will say that there is this paradox where Banerjee and certainly Nick DeNoia, who came in and really made this into a review, they were really invested in this not being sex work and like making it not be kind of porny. Yet at the same time, Banerjee had no such reservations about engaging in all kinds of criminality to promote this brand. And so to me, to your point, it's really interesting to think about like he was in many ways like so dedicated to you know, varnishing and whitewashing this like sexy thing is this is not sex work. This is the Disneyland for adults. But at the same time, behind the scenes, he's like taking out hits and like planning arsons <laughs> and embezzling funds. And like, so to me, um, it's actually not the sex work of it that is connected to the criminality, but I would say more kind of his business ethics or lack thereof. Right. And, and I mean, how did he get there? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that progression? I mean, was it was it day one? I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's a far cry. You know, it's one thing to be running a, uh, you know, Chippendales operation. It's another thing to be like literally knee deep in in serious uh, crime, like you know. <laughs> I mean, poor. Yeah, it's a little bit of a psychological question. And of course, Steve Banerjee is not around to tell this story about, you know, his own his own development towards this moment. But to me, it does seem um, one from talking to a lot of people who knew him and worked with him, like for him, like profit was its own justification. Like if you're making money, like almost anything is okay in pursuit of that, um, of that profit. And so there's that kind of way of thinking Two, like there are a lot of steps along the way before you get out, get to taking out murder hits on people. And so what we learned is that behind the scenes from very early on, there were all kinds of playing with the law, being dishonest that characterized his business practices. And so I think that probably he doesn't get caught. He sees that, oh, making a fake call to the cops to say that, you know, there's overcrowding, we'll get the media here, and he just gets more attention. He doesn't get caught for that. And so there's this kind of slow build. And then that's intensified by this really uh, strong rivalry that he ironically has with his partner, Nick DeNoia. And so he gets really kind of personally jealous and like viscerally angry that he's not getting the full glory and all the money of this thing that he's built. And so that kind of creates this, I think, perfect storm that leads him to be, um, you know, to the kind of violent acts that he takes and which occupy a lot of uh, welcome to your fantasy. So, so what was the, so for you, what was the hardest part of this? Um, or the strangest part of it as you went into this? I mean, clearly this is your, I mean, this is an area of expertise for you. So uh, presumably you're encountering unusual situations from history and culture all the time. Was there something that, that stood out to you, particularly on this, in, in this storytelling or in this story that, that was hard to get your head around or, or difficult to kind of, to, to explore? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of how to express this. 
one of there were a lot of challenges of different sorts with this project one of the ones that in terms of the storytelling and the kind of research i was doing you know there are a lot of kind of caric easily caricatured figures in this story like even if you watch the news reporting about chippendales there's the hot beefcake rock star there's the screaming women there's the um you know the evil businessman who turns into a murderer and one of the things that was really um important to me in telling this story was to do the legwork and talk to so many people as possible and do so much research to complicate all of those figures, but also making them compelling characters that, you know, come across in a 45 minute episode. And so it was really, it, it, that, that was, um, that was really a challenge. But I think, you know, when you start to really talk and do these interviews and, uh, you know, you just hear a few minutes of each interview in the, in these uh, episodes, but I sat for hours and hours with each of these people and you really get to know them as complex people and I would like to think that we gave them their due um, in doing so but that was really hard and uh, you know really a priority so so I know we we actually are for a little bit like almost out of time I, I have a, one, one more question just about this I, I I what what is what is the hope when you when people listen to this obviously there is this you know hugely salacious kind of juicy aspect to listening to I mean, as you just pointed out, it's like, you know, it could almost be very, you know, to walk away feeling like with a very reductive, getting a very reductive view of it. What do you hope the audience, I mean, you've unearthed this story, you've told it in great detail with great care. What do you hope the audience walks away with when they listen? And I know that's a broad question, kind of a, you know, there's a million ways you could answer it, but but there must be something in your mind that you feel like, you know, if, if, if an audience could get one thing from this show, besides being obviously wildly entertained, which it is wildly entertaining, you know, what is it, what is it that you hope this communicates or what is the storyline that you, you want people to see inside of it? Yeah, I think one of the, the most big picture takeaway that I could hope from this series, I think, is that people realize that, you know, things we think of as kind of pop culture punchlines can actually, if you take them seriously, reveal really fascinating, important things about our life and the world that we live in. And that's something I hope comes out in this podcast and in like all the work that I do that, you know, Chippendales, it's easy to dismiss as this silly, um, you know, relic of pop culture. But actually, when you like unpack why it was popular, who were the people involved, who showed up, why is it still around? Wow, you start to uncover some really, really interesting things about um, how we live and how we got here. And so I would say that's the biggest picture takeaway for me. I feel like I've been saying this about reality TV and very specifically Real Housewives for a long time of like, this is very important. A lot of people are engaging with this for very specific reasons and it is reshaping the way that they have conversations. And I think the Chippendales thing is similarly like, it isn't seen as like a sexual revolution or as like a movement of any kind, but it has this very similar effects on a large group of people. Like, you know, like straight women are not a, a, a small like sub community, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. a, a national, a national touring thing that is changing their behavior is worth analyzing. And it doesn't get, I feel like a lot of stuff that is like women's culture doesn't get the same, um, sort of like, you know, you talk about rock and roll or sports and people act like, you know, you're talking about 
the Sistine Chapel, but you talk about women's culture and people like laugh at it. Oh my yeah, gosh, hundred yeah. percent. And that is so important to me. I mean, there's no lower hanging fruit for people to act all superior about than women's consumer culture, I think. And you made the point really well, but like, you know, I mentioned jazzercise before. I'm writing a book about fitness culture. And like one of the first battles I always have to fight is like, why should we care about this thing that women spend their time doing as worth talking about? And it's not to say, oh, Chippendales was feminist. I do not think Chippendales was feminist, but I think it is <laughs> worth thinking about how it got marketed, how women made meaning of that, why it became so popular. So yeah, I totally agree with you. The gendered perspective on this is uh, it's not all pop culture is treated equally. And, and the, the, the women's consumer piece has a lot to do with it. I think that's. I think this is really interesting. By the way, we could do a whole other podcast about talking about because I was just thinking as you guys were were talking about this particular point about the the dissection and investigation of 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 pop culture and and what lens we see it through. I mean, obviously, there's all of this. Uh, uh, the story of the day right now is about Britney Spears and the way that that the way that she was treated as a kind of pop culture icon through this very specific lens. And when you go back and look. You say, wait a second, that story wasn't the story at all. There was this whole other story that we wouldn't, we either couldn't see or wouldn't allow ourselves to see. And I think, I think that the show has, to me, in a, it's in, a, it's in a similar, it is on a similar uh, uh, track, which is look when you look closer and when you when you peel back the the obvious answers and the expected answers, you find something totally different. You find something completely new there, and I think that. Um, I think that this that this show does it uh, so brilliantly, and I and I and I I really think it's great. And I'm so glad uh, that you could take time to talk to us because I think that uh, I hope that you know people pay attention uh, because I don't think it's just about looking backwards. I think it's also about when you hear a story like this and you you hear it, um, uh, you know, sort of pull it apart the way the way you all have done with this show. It makes you look at the story of the moment in a very different way, and I think you know that's the value of that cannot be dismissed. I appreciate your asking these questions so much because not everybody is interested in that facet, but I really appreciate it. So thank you for having me on. Yes, thank you. Uh, uh, Natalia Petrozella, the host of uh, uh, Welcome to Your Fantasy, a Spotify original podcast, which you should absolutely listen to, subscribe to, and share right now. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us. Wow. That was yes. so fun. Isn't I want to that... talk about Chippendales every week. I have so many unanswered questions about the Chippendales. And also, I'm mm. still I'll, I guess I'll have to go see their show and get some I'm answers. St I'm still waiting to find out. I applied uh, to become a member of the Chippendales. Oh, did you? And Yeah, and I'm still waiting. It's been like two years, but I feel like there's still a chance for me. Any day to now? To make it. They need like a out of shape, like a lanky out of shape. I'm surprised Nerd. we didn't have a 2000s reality show where it was like they would transform you into a Chippendales dancer with plastic surgery and like makeover stuff. Uh, I think we did. Did we? I feel like there's a show like that. There definitely was a show. There definitely was a reality show that where people got plastic surgery. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, the swan. I just meant oh, the swan. Men. The swan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, a male swan? Yeah, like a male. A, no, the the, the Mil Chippendale. Milf Island. Milf Island? <laughs> Just one of the funnier ideas. Deborah on thirty. Deborah from Milf Island. I mean, Milf she's Island very is, impressive. <laughs> Milf Island is a great idea, and I you know I know Thirty Rock is problematic. There's a lot of stuff on there that seems inappropriate. 
have they it aged have, the best. They did have, they, it's aged poorly, but they did have some pretty funny Let's, ideas. A Grand Slam joke is a Grand Slam joke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyhow, should we, should we, I feel like we just have time for nice. Should we get into yeah, nice Yeah, we'll things? just do nice things. Right, do you want me to go first or you want me to go first? Sure. My nice thing this week um, is uh, the television program WandaVision. Um, absolutely incredible. Uh, a plus, 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 plus. It has reengaged me with the entire Marvel universe, but also reignited my love of, I'm not even kidding of storytelling and television in general. Like the first job I ever wanted and my still my dream job in my heart of hearts is to show run my own TV show. And uh, like this has, it's so good. It has me amped to want to do that again in my life. And um, I did a podcast. Um, it's called Slayer Fest 98 that my friend Ian hosts, um, which is about Buffy and Angel. Um, but it also covers other similar shows the uh, within uh, that sort of genre and so he does a lot of marvel stuff and we did an episode about wandavision that episode five that just came out which had a huge twist which we'll probably talk about um that we dive into a ton of um discussion about just the 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 comic roots and and the cultural meanings and and just the art of this show and uh, i would recommend you go seek that out it's it's two hours but there's very smart people i got to talk to about it um but i'm obsessed with it like i are you watching it i can't i can't stop thinking about it yeah, no, I I am watching I am watching the show. I am glued to uh I honestly was like kind of like I'm not into this. I think this is kind of I mean, I enjoyed the shtick that WandaVision was doing. I thought I was like this is a legitimately, you know, creative experimental and creative idea to do this like sitcom uh uh sort of structure and and um you know, Laura sort of was watching it like ambiently and was like, this show is so annoying sounding. Like, I don't know what I'm not paying attention to it, but she was doing something else. And I agree. Like, if you listen, if you step back from like the content of the episodes, it is an extremely annoying sounding show because they are aping this style of like 50s and 60s sitcoms that are like, frankly, those shows were very annoying sounding. Like, I mean, this- I'm sorry. Everyone loves 80s sitcoms. I I I I and I certainly watched them at the time. I can't make it through an episode. Of it's, like House or something. it's like wanna, being on drugs. It's like being on drugs. I want to scream and throw the TV. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's the most it's the most fabricated version of the way people talk that has ever been depicted. And I will say, I think BoJack Horseman did a really good job with exploring partially partially exploring that um, the weird, just very drug like structure of those shows, or like Always Sunny, where they literally do. They're unhinged drug addict. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Watch psychopaths. It. But that's who. What sitcom characters are like? A real life version of Seinfeld is a lot closer to a meth user than it yeah. is to my life. Very unusual. City. Very <laughs> unusual. Very no chill whatsoever. But 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 you mentioned this that you're reengaging with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And what I want to say is that's interesting because there was a and spoiler alert for anybody who's listening who has not seen the show. They yeah. Please um, don't spoil it for yourself if you're listening to this. Go watch the show and come back. Please don't spoil this. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, they made a decision in the last episode that aired that not only is makes the show – I mean, the show got infinitely more interesting in the last episode for a variety of reasons, but it um, – it took a turn, and I'm just going to say, spoiler alert, don't listen any further if you haven't Please. seen it or you haven't read about it. Um, it introduces a character from the X-Men movies yes. that is a shared character uh, in the universe, in the Marvel universe, that was played by a different actor, basically a different version of this character who's Wanda's brother, uh, 
Peter Pite or Piter. Well, yeah, Fox uh, and Disney had to make an agreement that they yeah. could both use the character with different actors, and they wouldn't or use Pietro. His I guess his name is Pietro, rather. Yeah. Um. Um. But. But he's, he plays the character Quicksilver, and he's prominently featured in the latest, the last three X Men movie movies. And um, what it so, so what's interesting? The Ringer actually had a great story about this, and I will say, like Inverse, if you read Inverse, they've been covering this in tremendous detail. There's a lot if you want to like figure out what's going on and the implications. There's a lot of great stuff on Inverse to read. There's nowhere I go faster than when when it wanders. Yeah, when you're like, what the ends. fuck is going I'm on? I'm like, inverse.com, what are they saying? <laughs> yeah, but 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 the ringer also had a really interesting essay that kind of like talks about how um this change has these implications. It's not just that they're like, oh wow, because now Disney, I mean, they essentially I mean, they finally own they got back the rights to X-Men, right? They now Disney has And Fantastic Four. And Fantastic Four. So they're going to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and 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 they've in the in the in the Kevin Feige has talked a lot about how they're going to bring them back. It's going to take a while and all this stuff. And they basically started now for the first time in reintroducing it in this way that it, it works in in ways that are obvious and in ways that that until I sort of read some stuff and thought about it, I I didn't understand and and it is kind of blowing my mind. So on the one level, you're like so so WandaVision is a show set in a fictional sitcom. That is, again, spoiler alert, it's like essentially created by uh, uh, the Scarlet Witch, Wanda. That's what um, we're led to believe at the moment. It, I at don't least know. that's what we're led, right, we're led yeah. to believe that, there, that she, this is some construct she's created, which is interpreted, can be interpreted externally as a TV show that is running. Because she wants and, a perfect life in the style of the American TV shows she grew up like looking at from right. her Eastern European life. And, and, and so within, the, within this TV show, they introduce her brother. But her brother is comes on as like a cameo, like the lovable uncle character, which is like a very, very much a nod to many classic, like Uncle Jesse of the of Full House and many other famous like TV uncles. Um, and they're like, oh, they recast this character. Yeah. So, so the character Darcy, who's watching the show and is basically like, she's like the people's couch on Bravo. She watches the show and then talks about it. And we at home are supposed to like relate to her and sort of she'll help us get answers that we both need. She's like the audience insert. And when he shows up on screen, there's this amazing moment where, I mean, it's just amazing from a writing standpoint. I truly believe this scene is just a, a vertical slice of the show um, where she says that she recast Pietro and right. like. That's she pulled some other version of him in from another right. universe. And so and so that in and of itself is like a really fun little thing to play with, right? That like that but but what it gets to is an even bigger thing that's happening in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which which the more I read about and thought about, the more my mind was kind of like blown like we are about we are approaching a thing that has never happened in the history of filmmaking or in the history of entertainment. And it's super fucking weird, and it's only possible because comics corporate are mergers. <laughs> well, corporate mergers, but also because comics are the way they are. Yeah. So in the Marvel universe, there's this concept of the multiverse, and the multiverse essentially was created to to stabilize all of the various backstories and character changes that Reboots, have existed and reboots that have existed. You know that have existed in the Marvel world, right? And so. And it, which is a thing that has happened in comics forever, which is like, oh, a character dies and they come back or like, oh, another person takes up the mantle or, oh, we change, we retconned the backstory of a character to make it make more sense in the modern context because their old backstory was weird and didn't make any sense. And they basically said, okay, these are all in a, they are all, they can all be true. 
And the way that they are all true is that there's a there are m- many dimensions, and within those dimensions, there are different versions of all these characters. And it's like as a comic book concept, it's like a brilliant, it's a stroke of genius because it allows if you love the original backstory of a character, you're allowed to love it as much as you can love the rebooted backstory of a character. It's all real, okay? So here's what's interesting. So we do they do into the Spider Verse, and into the Spider Verse deals directly with the multiverse and into the spider verse is basically all of these different spider-mans including spider pig which is a pig spider-man like ridiculous versions but also like vert like the cool spider-man like the the, the it deals with spider like the spider-mans who are not peter parker um and it brings them into this universe and it's like oh this is interesting this is cool like the rumor for the next spider-man movie is that that it will include uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. It will include Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Uh, it will include obviously the the uh, what's his name Tom Holland Spider-Man, and uh, I think there's Miles Morales will be introduced in some way into it. And so here's what's going on that's really nuts. Not only are they introducing like this multiverse concept into the the canon of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like oh like the X-Men are involved because they maybe were in another universe, but now they can be in our universe because of like contractual things that have happened. But what they're actually doing is retconning all of the previous Marvel characters from previous Marvel movies into a modern Marvel universe, which like is honestly a very provocative and very unusual concept that is both completely in keeping with the characters within the stories themselves, like the comic characters, but it's also like extremely meta, like extremely meta, like that, that our reality that you've lived in is a part of the multiverse. And that like, what, like, like when, you know, when you were watching Tobey Maguire in the original Spider-Man, the reboot Spider-Man movies or whatever, the first set of them, that that's as much a part of the current Marvel movies as it has always been, as it would have always been, and that we're like retconning reality, which is it's it's the brilliant way to have your cake and eat it too. Because I've been saying for years that DC's strategy should be to do weird one-off meta things, different alternate universes, different versions of characters, like they did with Joker versus the Jared Leto version versus right. the Heath Ledger version versus the you know Harley Quinn. TV show like I I always thought DC what should have been going really hard on being the weird one if Marvel was going to be the most like everything here is the canon every story every character is hopefully played by the same actor with very very few exceptions and they all take place with the same cinematography in the same world this lets them continue to have that world for when they want to do Captain America movies but it also gives them the breadth to say we're going to do a one-off Captain America movie where it's played by a woman and it takes place during the 70s and it's going to be super weird and then they can they get to do whatever because it's just an alternate universe and it barely needs to be tied in and it also opens up them to do all this meta storytelling like in WandaVision the previously ons are different every time the scenes are rewritten th- the lighting is different things have been moved around oh is that true yes know, because Wanda that. is doing them live like She's creating the previously right. on it's, live, and she remembers very, it a little differently. It's very, um, 
it's it's very meta. I mean, it's it's we're very much in like uncharted territory. I have to say, like, I, I, I mean, I don't want to give them too much credit because it really hasn't been done yet. But they're in the process of doing it. If they pull it off the right way, it's an absolutely fascinating attempt at something that has never been done before which is to bring together like they are retconning they're doing what they did with the marvel universe in the comics with the marvel universe in in popular culture in pot in, in movies and in, in tv and and it's like and honestly it creates some amazing fascinating storytelling opportunities right like like what is a movie like you know what is a movie like when it brings in like people who've played the same character from different movies who have who have their whatever reality to contend with, what kind of storytelling possibilities are opened up there? It's super like super what, interesting. Like J.K. Simmons has played the exact same part in multiple Marvel universes. That's so fascinating. Wait, has he? Yeah, he was in the he was in the original Spider Man movies. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure isn't he in the Andrew Garfield ones, and now he's in the Tom Holland ones. Wait, is does he play J. Jonah Jameson in all of the movies? I believe so. And is that, in, and in animated stuff. Is that right? Hold on. I got I should know this, but uh uh what is uh, what is his name again? I just blanked on it. JK Simmons. Oh, JK Simmons, right. Okay, if that's right, then I'm, my mind is blown. JK Simmons, yes. by the way. Yes, he was he, he J. Jonah Jameson, Amazing Spider Man two, Spider Man Far From Home, and the original Spider Man trilogy. That see that's that's amazing. <laughs> is he does he play him in Into the Spider Verse? Is he even in it? I don't know if, he, if the character's in it, but if he is, I have to assume um, that he's playing the same part. But it's fascinating because like they'll bring together all these different Spider Men, and J.K. Simmons can do something fun like like his character doesn't change much in different universes. That would be so cool and weird, right? I mean, it's totally yeah, it's totally. Hold on, I'm just looking now because I his his Wikipedia is very poorly written. Uh, he did Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, I don't think he did. I'm not seeing Into the Spider-Verse. What's really insane is that he plays Gord James Gordon in Justice League. <laughs> it's just like I know they should just they need to buy Marvel needs to buy DC. I've said this for a long time, but they need to just buy DC so they can bring DC characters into the Marvel universe. So that some good writers can finally get Catwoman. Yeah, I agree. I'm sorry. It would be amazing. <laughs> If, like, Batman showed up in a Marvel movie. It would be amazing if, like, the Joker showed up and, like, they were, we, they were underestimating him because they're like, we, you know, we've already dealt with Thanos. And as much as I'm sick of Joker movies, it would be fun just a guy in clown makeup causing chaos for superheroes. Yes. I mean, they. by the way, there are comics where there's crossovers of these characters. Yeah. I, mean, I've, I have owned comic books where these characters cross over. But... Uh, yeah, they need to bring. They just need to slam it all together. I mean, this is what this is so far. Like to me, the most exciting thing about this stuff is that they are taking cues from comic books in a way that's bigger than ever. Like, I mean, we're definitely going to get like a Ultimate Universe or a New Fifty Two, where it's just a complete restart. Like, it, maybe it'll take twenty five years, but at some point they're going to start the whole universe over again with a new universe that links to the old Marvel universe. It's just. It's fucking so ambitious and so <laughs> yeah. crazy. I gotta say, and I gotta say, I I really disliked the Marvel movies. The early Marvel movies just did nothing for me. It's only it was only really the last couple of 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 I think like Civil War and then the like Endgame and and uh, Infinity War or whatever. Like 
there's a handful of them that are really exceptional. I thought Black Panther was super like very some of out them are good for, movies and some aren't. But the magic trick is the crossover stuff. Well, the, and the last Thor movie was like absolutely just a visual treat. treat. I think I actually think what hooked me was the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, where I was like, oh, we can have a movie about stuff that isn't just like Captain America and Iron Man. Yeah. And it can be really interesting. And I was like, okay, this is this could be, you know, I maybe I'll get I'll actually spend time with these. I'm I'm legitimately now like this is good and interesting, and they are doing something that is ambitious and different. And like I want to spend time with this series. You know, like I still like I, I felt like after the last few films, you're kind of like, all right, what where are you gonna go with this, right? Now I'm like, wow, they could go so many crazy and interesting places. I can't even begin to to think of it, you know, to 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 imagine it. So, yeah, all right, that's my nice thing, I guess. That as was well. my I'm nice thing. Go, I'm going with you. I'm going. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna piggyback onto your nice thing and say right. my nice thing is your nice thing. The rare a, double nice thing. That's a nice thing in and of itself. Oh. You know. Anyhow, we got to wrap up. I got to get out of here. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that is our show for this week. We'll be back next week with more tomorrow. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best, though I've just learned that your family is recasting the show and you're out.